Hello and welcome to your Over the Farmgate podcast brought to you by Farmers Guardian and UK Research and Innovation. I'm your host for this week, Farmers Guardian editor Ben Briggs. Don't forget, you can subscribe on your favourite podcast platform so you never miss an episode of Over the Farmgate. Up this week and with the COP26 Climate Summit in full swing, we continue with our series on climate change and sustainability. Looking at the innovative solutions the farming sector is deploying to mitigate the industry's impact on the environment. This week we delve into a production system where the sky literally is the limit. Yep, we're talking about vertical farming. Here's Jess Fredenberg who's been chatting to two experts on a technology that is becoming more and more commonplace. Vertical farming. Does all the hype stack up? Can these systems really save input costs? Do they offer viable diversification opportunities? Or will they always be the preserve of big time farmers and investors? And of course, are they really better for the planet? And what contribution can they actually make to our food system? We'll be getting the inside view from an award-winning designer and supplier of vertical farms in a minute. But first, to answer some of these questions, I've been talking to Sarah Hughes. Sarah lives on a sheep and beef farm in North Wales and in 2018 completed a Nuffield scholarship on vertical farms, visiting some of the most advanced operations around the globe. At the time, she was running an edible flower business from her farm, but knew that diversification into many other crops was limited by the landscape. And so she set out to see if vertical farming offered an opportunity for the ordinary business. Before we head into that chat with Sarah, I should apologise for the sound quality coming up as it was made in a very, very small room in a co-working space and I am not in a bathroom. Sarah, can you tell us, first of all, what really is vertical farming? You know, what does it look like? How does it work? And which crops can you grow with it? There's kind of more than one um, explanation for vertical farming. And I sometimes think a better description is controlled environment agriculture. And what that covers is controlling every aspect of Um, enclosed growing so imagine a glass house you're controlling the water you're growing via hydroponics and and there's kind of every extreme from just the normal the greenhouse glass house right up to the what we think of as vertical farming models you know inside a shipping container where you're using artificial lighting you have no natural inputs at all everything is controlled by you and it's probably stacked up on multiple levels. So every level has a growing surface. You might have five, six, seven, up to 10, 15 levels. Um, And then those are being totally controlled with the temperature, carbon dioxide, the nutrients, the lighting, everything. So I think vertical farming can mean just growing you know, like like tomatoes, you know, the way we grow them, they are in a vertical stack. But I think probably what most people understand would be that multi-layered shelving with artificial lightings. But as I found out, it was a little bit more complicated than I first thought. It does sound very complicated, but really quite fascinating as well. So I think we're going to have an interesting discussion, Sarah. And we'll get into the, the conclusions from your Nuffield in a, in a second. But I just wanted to, to ask you to please um, 
Can you give us a flavour, first of all, of where your Nuffield travels took you in search of those, those answers? I really wanted to look at places that had quite a well-developed controlled agriculture or vertical farming um, industry. And the obvious one was Japan. So Japan has been doing um, indoor agriculture or, or vertical farming really from the end of the, the Second World War. So that was somewhere I wanted to go to because I felt there would be a lot of even recent history of the development of the system. So that was um, top of my list. I also wanted to go to California. So California is known for its extensive outside growing of salad crops, but it's got some real challenges such as water usage and, and it's you know become quite political there. Um, but they're also really up there on the kind of, you know, the whole Silicon Valley, that new tech, ag tech. So that was another area I wanted to look at. And then the Netherlands was key on my list because they have that big history of the glasshouse growing. They're also very much into their automation. And I felt that was a, an industry in a country that really would be looking at the next step. And I felt if anywhere was going to be taking it forward, it would be the Netherlands. And they also have such an advanced um, kind of academic um, facilities with places like Wageningen, I felt that I'd be able to look at different sides of that that as well. And then I was very lucky I went to uh, Dubai and Germany and, and just some other countries that kind of filled in some of those gaps. And what sorts of crops did you did you see being grown? Uh, well, literally everything. I mean, it's not it's not over exaggerating to say that you can grow anything anywhere in the world. The question that I had was, you know, is it economical to do that? I saw potatoes being grown in aeroponic systems, um, microgreens, fruit trees. I mean, literally everything. But um, just because you can grow it and you've got the technology to grow it, it doesn't mean it's a good business model and, you know, that any of us could set it up and make any money of it. So, I, yeah, I literally saw everything. The majority of crops I saw, particularly on commercial situations, were salads, leafy greens, and particularly those low-level, as in low-height vertical systems, which are only about 30 centimetres. There is a limit of how high you can grow stuff, and a, a lettuce or basil kind of fits quite well because it doesn't grow much higher than that. So the majority of crops I was seeing were leafy greens, as they call them, of different varieties. As you've just said there, I think you were you were looking at some some really key questions about whether the the facts live up to the the hype really around vertical farming. Let's look at the the um, sorry the environmental side first environmentally does it does it really stack up well so i i did most of my travels in 2018 19 so obviously we're a couple of years on but from my understanding i don't think it's changed that much i think um from a water efficiency point of view i think it's amazing you know i've seen figures of up to 90 95 percent uh, water efficiency compared to a kind of field-based model because with these um, controlled models you can circulate that water you can use it you can clean it and you have quite a, a low level of wastage 
But you could also argue that's what a lot of glass houses are doing already. So the majority of our um, fresh produce, tomatoes, you know, things like that are already using hydroponic systems. So they might argue that they're already being very water efficient. The other argument for some of the environmental benefits is the the fact that, you know, the energy, it's really low energy use because you're controlling everything. And this is where personally I had a bit of an issue with it so if you're completely having to control the lighting you can't get away from the fact that it costs energy to so you've got to run those lights um, and also the setup costs are, are really quite enormous for these big systems but with um more hybrid systems where you're using sunlight obviously that energy is free obviously, because, you know, it's coming from the sun. Whereas if you're replacing that with LEDs, even if they're really efficient LEDs, there's still an energy cost. And that's where when I was looking and when I did my report um, and talked to academics, particularly um, academics in Wageningen, they were suggesting that the current models and the current energy efficiencies were still not good enough to make it to make that as an environmental claim from an energy point of view. I think that's a that's a very interesting point, and it's it's something I've always always wondered with uh, vertical farming, like you say, that you know keeping the lights on. I mean, it's something you obviously don't yeah. need to do yeah. in a in a you know a field based farming system. Um, okay, so lots of lots of issues there. Well, what about more environmentally in terms of the precision of it? Because well, I guess that's the whole thing, isn't it, about vertical farming? Is you get to really really control the inputs um and you're arguably you're you're also not having to use insecticides pesticides i'm guessing because it's in this controlled environment where those things don't exist absolutely and and i think that's a real um positive for these types of systems and it's maybe something we don't hear enough about when I did my travels, I spent a lot of time having these things called air showers, which really are, you know, literally it's like walking through a hairdryer because what they're trying to do is they're trying to blow away any potential contaminants, insects or anything that you might be bringing into any of these facilities. And they are like um, kind of biotech pharmaceutical facilities because they're such a perfect growing environment they're perfect for anything bugs um, microorganisms so they have to be super super clean to create that just a pure growing environment for what you want but not what you don't want which the benefit of that means that you can um, reduce well you know you don't have to use your pesticides your herbicides um, or biocides and as long as they can keep all those the nasties out that does really reduce your inputs the risk is if something gets in you know, it goes bananas. So that's always, you know, we're all very used to wearing PPE now, but that's the everyday reality for people working those facilities. They'll be wearing the kind of overshoes, the fully zip up and the face mask because they just don't want to be bringing anything nasty in to that perfect environment for growing. What about financially then? Because, you know, is is this something that uh, makes economic sense for the average UK farmer, for example? Um, or is this something that's only going to work if you're a big, I don't know, tech investor or something? Um, you know, how, how does it sort of work in, in that sense? If you're going to do it on a scale that that you've kind of got that 
economics of scale, the setup costs are phenomenal. You know, we're often talking, you hear millions of pounds being used as setup figures. So for most farmers or um, normal business people, where do you access that level of in startup investment for a start? So that's a real challenge. And then once you've got your facility up and running you've then got your running costs and that's where you know you need to be producing something that's of a a value enough to be able to cover your production costs and I think um, the the kind of businesses that I looked at their biggest costs at the time were labour and energy so for all the lighting and the CO2 and you know we know at the moment that energy costs have gone through the roof and they have for all businesses but you know a a controlled environment or a vertical farm would be no different and labour costs or labour availability again is a challenge for the whole of the horticulture industry not just vertical farms so I think some of the the challenges for those types of systems are the challenges that other horticulture industries are facing and unless you went down a very automated route which when I was looking there really weren't any businesses doing that they were talking about doing it but because of the investment costs it wasn't happening you're always going to have that labour cost which makes it quite an expensive model so what can you grow that's going to give you an income that makes it worthwhile and personally for me you know, even fancy lettuces have got a price limit. And that customer base, um, we all know in COVID how hard the the kind of catering and restaurant sector was hit. So if your business model is is based around selling to high-end restaurants, it must be really, really challenging during that period. And unless you could pivot your model into something else, you know, you're not producing your, your everyday carrots and spuds that we're buying in the supermarket. And for me, I think that's the big challenge. Unless you can be producing something that everybody wants to buy at a price point they want to pay and still make money, that's when those models will work um, on a kind of bigger scale and move beyond that kind of niche, very specific um, kind of crop. Did you see any smaller production systems on your travels perhaps by by farmers themselves you know ordinary farmers because i know we'll, we'll be hearing from intelligent growth solutions after this and you know they say that their their system it's it's a stackable one which means that um essentially you can kind of make it as small or as big as as you want and the idea is that it's uh it's easier for the average farmer I think some of these these smaller, I think they call them turnkey solution systems, where you literally kind of plug it in and it's all ready to go. They're amazing. And the, the kind of technology is really advanced and what you can grow um, is great. But I still think you've got that same challenge. So if you're a farmer in um, a rural location, let's say, and you're producing quite a high quantity of salads, who are you going to be selling them to? So you're probably not selling at a scale where you can be providing um, a kind of bigger retailer because that's we're talking big amounts. So then you need to sell to a local audience. And sometimes these small units, they do produce actually quite a lot of um, salads. 
So you need quite a high turnover of your salads to be able to keep the system going. And if you haven't got either the, the volume of customers or the right type of customers who want to pay a bit more, again, it's come back to that, that business model. I think there's some really great opportunities, you know, that we talk about um, bringing fresh produce closer to people. So I've seen systems in towns or at universities. And I think everybody should be able to access fresh fruit and vegetable. I mean, I don't particularly think it has to be grown in a vertical farm, but I think that should be everybody's kind of right, really, to access fresh, healthy food. But it always comes down to the... Um, it comes down to that kind of model and how do you get it to work, really? And how do you make it affordable for the audience that you're trying to sell it to? If if that challenge of making it financially viable was overcome, let's say in the future as these systems develop, um, do you think there is a place for vertical farming and also not a place for vertical farming? For example, um, is it something that, like you've alluded to just there, that would be really appropriate in kind of cities of the future and things like that, or more in people's homes so they can have their own production systems, but perhaps not so much on farms, or, or maybe it's in places that are highly populated with not much productive agricultural land? I think it depends on... Um affordability of the system. So where I could see it working really well um, are in schemes where it was felt really important for a community to be able to produce, say, for example, really fresh lettuces. But maybe that model couldn't stand alone financially because the people that you're trying to um, grow the produce for maybe can't afford to pay a premium price. So that's where you could subsidise that type of system to really bring affordable food to local people. And that would be amazing. Or you could have it in a really fancy, I don't know, central London housing development where people would just love to be buying kind of fresh basil before they pop up to their luxury apartment and pop it on their pizza. But again, it's about um, their kind of different experiences there it's not about necessarily just providing basic vegetables for the shopping basket and I think for me I feel there are some really really strong well lots of really strong horticulture businesses in the UK already and where they struggle is to perhaps get investment to tech themselves up to the next level because they want to improve their ag tech as well but they're maybe not seen as um, attractive or trendy as some of these kind of newer vertical farming models and and that's where I think we need to support those types of businesses who are very competitive and efficient and have the experience of growing fruit and veg. I'm guessing Sarah given everything that you've said you haven't taken on a, a vertical farming system on your farm then? I didn't. And in some ways it was kind of, I felt like it was a bit disappointing. You know, I did all those travels. I kind of, you know, it would have been lovely to come back and say, oh yeah, now I've set up this business. Um, but I actually, it really came down to the hard economics. At the time, it, it just wasn't economical. I'm not saying I wouldn't look at it again, but until the electricity prices reduce to make it economical, it, it for me, it just wasn't viable at the time. So it was something I'd look at again. And some of the technology, some of the things I saw about how you can manipulate the light to actually create different 
vitamins in lettuces and you know that stuff I think is amazing and probably that's where the future is creating novel or um, health benefits in what you know what you might see as a boring lettuce and that's maybe where the future is but I think just competing on a, a basic lettuce front I just don't see that's that's going to be where this um, this kind of industry fits really. That was Sarah Hughes giving us a very honest look at vertical farming. Now, technology moves fast, of course, and some of the things may have changed since Sarah did her Nuffield. So to find out a bit more about one particular vertical farming system, I'm now joined by David Farquhar, CEO of Intelligent Growth Solutions, a Scottish company which designs, supplies and supports vertical farms for growers all over the world. David, can you give us a sense of what is it like to walk into one of your production systems, one of your vertical farms? What, what does it look like when you get in? Well, it's not just what it looks like. It's, uh, it's an assault on the senses. Um, so you walk in through the biosecure airlock, which keeps the bugs and diseases and pests out. But frankly, it keeps humans out as well because they tend to bring those things in. And then this curtain lifts either side of you and you see a hundred thousand LED lights, almost like the stars in the sky. Um, they could be uh, any color. Um, they could be multifarious colors in, in the one thing. And when you go into uh, the space between the two sets of racking in the tray, you crane your neck back and you can look up and on either side of you are 25 trays, uh, each with about 5,000 lights on them. The next thing that hits you, um, frankly, is the smell. So you're in with these, um, you know, uh, crops that are producing phenols all the time. Um, you know, some of them very, very potent. The third one is it makes all these little whirring noises. Um, for the older farmers amongst us, um, let's go back to Thunderbirds in the 1960s. Um, and if, you, if you're a bit younger, Star Wars. But it makes all these wonderful machine whirring noises that you really want a, a robot to make. Uh, and then the final thing is you pick the crop and you taste it. And it, the intensity of flavor, whether you're picking a strawberry, whether you're picking um, a fennel or a, a frond or, I don't know, a basil leaf, um, that's the final thing that really hits you. Then you know you've got a very high quality crop. David, that's such a wonderful picture. I don't think I've ever had anybody on this podcast paint such a, a wonderfully uh, colourful picture of, of a place. So thank you for that. Um, I, I feel like I, I can really imagine what, what that is like. Let, let's talk then about um, who this is designed for, because I think there you're, you're probably describing your own site, aren't you, the, the main site. But you obviously design, you know, obviously make these um, make these systems to be used by other farmers. So can you just tell us a little bit, you know, who are these vertical farming systems really designed for? You know, do you need to be a big farmer with lots of upfront capital? I had a really super meeting with Martin Kennedy, the uh, new uh, president of the NFU up here in Scotland. Um, Martin's biggest concern when we met uh, at his farm high on the hills above Aberfeldy was, oh no, are you going to replace my members? And I said, you know what, Martin, the exact opposite. We're going to replace imports and your members are going to grow them. So actually, here's an opportunity to develop a whole bunch of uh, farming businesses 
uh, and do away with um, expensive and non-sustainable imports. Um, and, you know, Martin was very, very pleased with that. So the people that we recognize as customers are all farmers or growers. Um, let, let me start with the new breed of sort of wannabe urban farmers. Um, many of them will never have grown anything much in their lives before. Some of them um, have grown mushrooms and stuff like that. Some of them have tried to build their own vertical farms and discovered just how hard that is. Uh, they will typically be in an urban or peri-urban environment. Um, they'll probably be growing leafy greens, herbs, salads, microgreens. They'll be growing them for restaurants and hotels. They'll be growing them for retail. Um, and they'll be growing from seed to harvest. We then have broad acre farmers. Um, and you know people who uh, are growing things in fields like potatoes broccoli and so on and um, one of the things they're certainly looking for is a much more reliable and higher quality uh, supply of starter plants the second big thing that we get told by um, real farmers is um, well is this a way to diversify my business away from what i've been doing so here's a completely orthogonal one for you, a dairy farm. And we're talking to a, a chap in the southwest of Scotland here. Um, so producing, uh, you know, millions of litres of milk going to one big uh, dairy produce manufacturer. Um, so, you know, a business that's quite exposed to a single contract. Um, but um, building an AD plant to um, use the cattle slurry to generate renewable energy. So why not add value to what you've just done and use it to power a vertical farm, um, but you're also diversifying your business. Um, and so having the ability to do that, um, you know, means that you can de-risk, um, you know, the profile of, of, of your business. Uh, and then the final big thing is keeping the next generation on the land. Um, so how do you keep the siblings uh, in the family business? Well, here's a vertical farm. Why don't you guys go and run that part of the, the op operation? So those are the three big things that Broadacre farmers will tell us they're lo looking for. Um, the other type of existing growers are those um, in greenhouses, either under glass or, or poly. Um, they too are looking for a much better supply of starter plants. So, you know, if you take the UK strawberry industry, um, we, our understanding is that around about 40% of starter plants never get planted. So they're imported from the continent or North Africa um, and they get, they get thrown away because they're damaged, they're diseased, they've got pests on them. So the inefficiencies in these uh, se sectors are extremely high. Um, and then if you are growing something under poly, maybe there's a seasonality to that. And maybe you can do something with the ver vertical farm that extends your season as well. Well, let, let's let's look at that in a little bit more detail then. So, if you're say you're an average farmer, and let's pick the the diversification option there because I think that's a really interesting one. Say you're you're not you know you're not um, a salad grower, for example. You're you're not even even growing like field veg at this moment. Say you are a dairy farmer, for example, like like you said earlier. Firstly, I mean, what what kind of skills do you need to take on something like this? And what what other resources would you need in terms of space, in terms of, um, say, access to, to water, to power? And what kind of capital upfront costs are we talking about? 
So one of the key skills is the ability to leave things alone. You really want to leave the machine to do things um, because the machine will generate the weather. So the machine um, is trained to know that you've got crop X in this particular tray. It was planted on that day. We know how many days old it is. We know how long it will take to harvest. And we know the type of weather that this plant wants the most uh, each two to three days of its life. And the interesting thing about this that, that, that we've learned is this massively speeds up growth without compromising quality. Let's take broccoli starter plants. They normally take six to eight weeks to grow to about six inches high when they would be planted out in a field. Um, our system will grow them in 11 days. Why? Because it just gives them the perfect weather that they want in two to three day bursts. Uh, same thing goes for seed potatoes. So they normally take 18 months from a piece of germplasm, like a, a little stem, all the way through to a big healthy bunch uh, underneath a three foot high bush of, of decent potatoes to be planted out. Uh, our system does it, uh, rather than in 18 months, it does it in two and a half months, 75 days, with no cold storage and virtually no manual handling. And, and how is that controlled? Um, that, I suppose that's what I mean. Is this a, effectively a, a computer program that, that a farmer, you know, if a farmer is not particularly technology savvy, for example, how would they go about controlling all of these, these variables? You know, provided you can operate the seeding machine, which even I can do, uh, provided you can operate a harvesting machine, which again, you just mostly stand and watch it, um, then you have the, um, you only have the job of allowing the computer to go ahead and um, send the growth re recipe to the machine. The machine makes all the cal calculations and it delivers the exact, for example, the exact amount of water that's required with the exact uh, nutrients, with the exact pH value that's required. What you can do, however, is you can come back to us or someone like the James Hutton and say, you know what, I would really like to increase the size of my tomatoes by 50% or whatever, you know, some the level of vitamin C in my lettuce or something. Um, and we can apply crop science to change the weather recipe to deliver that outcome that you're seeking. But these are not skills that the individual farmer requires. In terms of things like you asked about services and so on, yeah, you need an internet connection. You need to have a, a good supply of uh, water. But frankly, rainwater is good enough. We harvest rainwater and we the machine uses that. You know, probably the, the toughest thing is identifying off-takers. So if you've, you know, always supplied uh, to one particular customer in some sort of dairy pr production facility and you're now going to sell to local co-ops or local hotels, um, you know, that's probably the, the biggest task is um, bringing in those contracts. And if you were going to start small like that, say you say you just want to kind of, because uh, I think that's something, isn't it, that's, that's specific to um, to your company is that it's scalable and it, from what I understand, it's a series of almost um, stackable trays, right? So you can kind of, yeah, so you can kind of start as small as you like. So if you wanted to just, just start small, say you just want to, you want to start experimenting, see how it goes with say like a few customers, maybe like a few local, like you said, hotels, pubs, that kind of thing. 
Um, what are we talking about in terms of upfront costs and the space that would be needed as well? So if you look on our website, the vertical farm you'll see, which is co-located with the James Hutton at Invergowrie near Dundee, that is a four tower system. Um, so the minimum that we can sell you is a, a pair of towers because they have the adjoining corridor with the uh, 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 biosecure airlock on the front um, that lets the robots in and out. Um, so a pair of towers, six meters high, which would give you in, in each tower, it's going to give you about 30 growth trays. Each growth tray is exactly the size of a professional snooker table, so just over six square meters. Um, it has a footprint of 42 square meters, so six meters by seven, and the nine meter high version will grow the same as three and a half to four hectares in a field, just on 42 square meters. So very, very space efficient. You were asking about space earlier. So in order to put up your first, you know, couple of towers, you literally need about 100 square meters of space. And lots of farms have got those in a yard somewhere or behind a barn. Um, and, and so then we come on to the cost. But we've got two ways that you can do it. So you can pay up front. You can, you know, either get a, a grant or go and raise capital to do this. And there are lots of lots of sources of money wanting to um, sponsor this um, because they see it as the future. Uh, or we have a new offering called um, a farm as a service uh, in which um, we can come and build something uh, on a site, whether you own the site or not. Um, we would own the machine uh, and we would maintain the machine uh, but the farmer would have exclusive rights to operate the machine as they saw fit and would simply pay us a subscription, almost like a rent, uh, for doing so. Uh, so that removes the need for the upfront cost uh, completely. But if we calculate um, on, a, on a, a pair of um, nine metre high towers, you're talking about two and a half million pounds um, but actually, the more interesting question is, what is the payback period? Uh, and it is so profitable that the payback period is between two and a half and four years anywhere that we've studied uh, in the markets we serve. So North America, Europe, the Middle East, um, uh, Southeast Asia and Australia, New Zealand. Um, so in terms of the payback, if you compare that to something like a wind farm, you know, the payback on that is like 12 to 15 years. So the payback here. Uh, you know, is is that much, that much payback quicker. though? Is what is that based on? Is that based on quite a large scale operation? And and what you know? No. No, no. Every unit. It doesn't really matter whether you buy two towers, ten towers, two hundred towers. It, it, the unit of output is based on the per tower tonnage. Mm. So the tonnage of crop that will come out of one of these forty-two square meter footprint towers is typically between 20 and 25 tons per annum, uh, which for those kind of crops is how you get the calculation to uh, three to four hectares. Obviously, if you're growing, you know, root, root crops, uh, they're much, much heavier. And therefore, the tonnage per acre or per hectare is going to be significantly different. Mm, OK. OK. And so, like you said, you're, you're, I mean, obviously, a lot of that depends on um, the, the payoff depends on, on getting those those contracts, as you were saying. 
What about um, energy use, though? You, you mentioned that a second ago, but what, what kind of energy consumption are we talking about for um, for a smaller a smaller unit, like the sort of the one that we were talking about earlier? Yeah, so you're looking at about uh, 50 kilowatt hours um, per annum for each tower, um, and that is uh, something that we're bringing down all the time. Um, <clears throat> but it, you know, it is uh, the, the the prices I gave you. And the payback period uh, I gave you um, have the energy completely factored in and actually factored in at quite a high price. Um, that 13 pence a kilowatt hour that we pay for green energy. Yeah, you can buy it cheaper, um, but you can buy it, you know, you can buy it completely renewable um, off the grid. And so and you can generate your own as well, as we discussed earlier. But 50 kilowatt hours per annum. Um, you know, for a tower is is about normal. You're obviously the the CEO, David. So this is maybe a, a difficult question, but um, are there any are there any downsides to vertical farming, or what what are the downsides? Um, so you know, let's go back to the energy consumption. I think the energy consumption can be brought down. We can make it you know ever more efficient, um, and we can do that in lots of different ways. For example. You know, applying the crop science to understand which of the LED lights we really do need to have switched on. Green light tends to, the green spectrum tends to stress plants. Now, there's a point in their growth where we actually want to do that because it helps to harden them off a bit uh, for when we plant them out, if they're, uh, if they're seedlings. Um, but a lot of the time, we don't need that green light switched on. So let's switch it off. And, you know, uniquely, our system will allow you to do that kind of thing. It's not just white or off. Um, the range of crops you can grow in most vertical farms is limited to one or two leafy greens. We've now grown about 200 different varieties um, and are bringing more and more of them into economic uh, viability. Um, and then I suppose the final one is we're probably never going to grow bananas. What we need to be is realistic. Um, vertical farming is not going to solve the world's hunger problems. It's not going to help feed you know, 10 billion people by 2050. And uh, I think that vertical farming will make a contribution uh, to feeding the world. I think vertical farming will make a contribution to, to tackling climate change. Again, it's not going to solve it on its own. So let's be realistic about this. But it can make a significant contribution. So provided that we are re realists and not, uh, you know, dreamers or just making stuff up, um, then I think we can see vertical farming as a great tool for existing farmers uh, helping to hybridize and diversify their op 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 their operations uh, and you know let's let's replace those foreign imports thanks to jez and to sarah and david for that fascinating insight as with any farming system and business whether it stacks up financially very much depends on individual circumstances so if you think this is a technology that might suit your business then the message is do your research well, that's it for this week. We hope you enjoyed the show. Make sure you subscribe so you don't miss any of the new episodes of Over the Farm Gate. Until next week, from us at Farmer's Guardian, thank you for listening, goodbye for now, and I hope you stay dry in this rather wet weather. Bye.